The following message is by Pastor Brandon Dyer of Windsor Christian Fellowship. For more information on our church, visit www.windsorchristianfellowship.org. Matthew 9. This morning I want to talk to you about our King's authority over disease and death. And we're going to be looking at Matthew chapter 9. Verses 18 to 26. But before we get into our message this morning, let's go ahead and pray one more time. Father, we thank you for the opportunity that we've had this morning to worship you thus far in the Lord's table and the scripture reading and the prayers. Father, now we pray that you'll add your blessing to the preaching of your word. Pray this in your son's holy name. Amen. Two realities that we will all face within our life, are disease and death. Some of you have battled disease within your own life. Certainly all of us have experienced the loss of a loved one. We know these realities even when we are children, but the older we get, the more vivid, the more true, the more real these two become, disease and death. My earliest recollections really of disease and death revolve around my grandmother, who is really the sweetest non-Christian that you would have ever met uh, really most of her life until she did trust in Christ later on when she was older. She was the quintessential grandmother. She loved to cross-stitch and do artsy, craftsy things and all of that. But when I was a teenager, things had gotten so bad with her Parkinson's disease that my parents took her in for a certain period of time, for about a year or so. But while I, I, I ended up going off to college a decade ago and She ended up passing away uh, during that time. But as a teenager, that was really my first encounter with serious disease, like like Parkinson's disease, a a serious struggle, a serious battle of that kind. And really, it was the first time that somebody within my own family had passed away. So, and there's nobody here this morning who really couldn't tell a similar story. Where You remember the first person, you remember your first grandparent that had passed away, or the first person in your family who had a disease or had gotten sick. But this morning, what we're going to see is that the people who make up the kingdom of God have a significant hope when it comes to disease and death. Not that we won't experience disease. We certainly almost all will. Not that we won't experience death. We will experience death. But what we will see within this morning's passage and what we've even seen within this book of the Bible as a whole is that our king has complete authority. And in this passage, he has complete authority over disease and death. That even though we may encounter disease in our lifetime, our king has authority over that disease. That even though death is going to come upon us all, that it is not the end. And although it is not the end, we need to remember that death has been from the beginning. The world has always existed with death. In the very beginning of the Bible, we see that man and woman woman were created perfect. There wasn't any sin. They had this beautiful relationship with God. There was no sickness. There was no death. And it will one day be that way again. But in our time now, and in Jesus' time, death and disease have flourished. So look with me at Matthew chapter 9, beginning in verse 18. While he was saying these things to them, behold, a ruler came in and knelt before him, saying, My daughter has just died, but come and lay your hand on her, and she will live. And Jesus rose and followed him. 
And behold, a woman who had suffered from a discharge of blood for twelve years came up behind him and touched the frame of his garment. For she said to herself, If I only touch his garment, I will be made well. Jesus turned and seeing her, he said, Take heart, daughter, your faith has made you well. And instantly the woman was made well. And when Jesus came to the ruler's house and saw the flute players and the crowd making a commotion, he said, Go away, for the girl is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But when the crowd had been put outside, he went in and took her by the hand, and the girl arose. And the report of this went through all that district. So this is a really interesting account. This is an interesting passage, because what we have is really a healing account within a resurrection account. The first couple verses deal with this ruler who came to Jesus about his daughter who had died. Jesus says, yes, I'll I'll come. And so he goes with this man. But on the way to his house, Jesus runs into this woman who has a significant physical issue. So he deals with her issue and then he continues on the way to the ruler's house to see his little girl. So we really have a, a story within a story. And it begins in verse 18 where we see that Jesus was still talking about what we learned last week. And then this ruler comes up to him in order to ask him to come and to see his little girl. So Jesus had recently been at a feast that his new disciple Matthew had thrown. You remember a few weeks back we talked about the calling of Matthew. And so Matthew, this tax collector, has become a disciple of Jesus. And the first thing that Matthew does is he has Jesus come to his house and he throws this big banquet in honor for Jesus. But while they were there, Pharisees came up to uh, the disciples there and asked, why is Jesus sitting and eating with tax collectors and sinners? But then there was a second question where the disciples of John the Baptist ended up coming up to Jesus and saying, why don't you fast like the Pharisees? So there were these questions that had been going on. And so Jesus is in the midst of responding to these kinds of things when this ruler comes up to him, this Jewish ruler comes up to him. And look again what he asks of Jesus or says to Jesus really in the end of verse 18. He says, my daughter has just died, but come and lay your hand on her and she will live. So again, as Jesus is discussing these things with the disciples of John about fasting, the ruler comes up to Jesus. Now Matthew doesn't exactly tell us what kind of ruler this man is, but we see over in Luke's gospel and Mark's gospel that he was a ruler in the Jewish synagogue. So he was a Jewish religious leader. He would have been exceedingly important in the lives, in the religious lives of these Jews. Another famous Jewish ruler that we may all know from John chapter 3. Remember the discussion that Jesus has with a man named Nicodemus saying, you must be born again. Well, it's said of Nicodemus that he was a ruler as well. But if you remember up until this point, Jesus hasn't had positive run-ins with the Jewish religious authorities. Yet here he is, this ruler coming up to Jesus. He kneels before him. Luke says that he falls at Jesus' feet. Other translations say that this ruler comes and worships Jesus. And then with what we can imagine was a, a voice of urgency, eyes of intensity. He looks at Jesus and says, my daughter has just died. As the dad of a little girl, I can't imagine saying those words to somebody. My daughter has just died. What a terrible day for this man. As a religious ruler, he was likely fine financially, probably had respect and authority, he probably lived pretty comfortably and all of that. But none of that would matter at all 
in the midst of his daughter dying. We know from the other Gospels that she was probably about 12 years old. But this ruler isn't coming to Jesus for sympathy. He's coming to Jesus for a miracle. Look again at what he says in verse 18. My daughter has just died, but come and lay your hand on her, and she will live. So this ruler is clearly indicating his faith that Christ could come and heal his daughter. That he could come and resurrect his daughter. He believes that even though she is dead, that Christ could come and bring her back to life. Which is interesting. Because of the general consensus that the Jewish religious leaders had of Jesus. They don't like him. They don't want to be around him. And as time goes on, things only get worse. But it's even more interesting that this ruler comes to him about the resurrection of his daughter from the dead because Jesus, up until this point, he hasn't mentioned resurrection. So from our perspective, well, we know that Jesus raised Lazarus. That's kind of one of the more famous ones. This one with Jairus, this is a famous example. Jesus himself being raised from the dead, that's of course. So we look at it from the back end and say, okay, well, yeah, of course, Jesus could uh, resurrect somebody. But up until this point, this was all pre-resurrection. So this ruler to say, Jesus, come and resurrect my daughter is significant. You have a leprous daughter, Jesus, Jesus could heal her. You have a crippled daughter, Jesus could heal her. You have a demon-possessed daughter, Jesus could go ahead and expel that demon out of her. But within Matthew's gospel, Jesus hasn't raised anybody from the dead yet. But here this religious ruler is, believing that Christ could raise his little girl from the dead. So Jesus gets up from the table where he's at, at Matthew's house. He grabs his disciples, and they begin to follow after this man, who we know as Jairus. And so as they are on their way to Jairus' house, the crowds were pressing around him. Again, Jesus' fame is spreading. It's going throughout all of the area. And so the crowds are just pressing around Jesus. Within this crowd, there was a woman who had what is called a discharge of blood. And this is often assumed to be some sort of menstrual disorder. She had been dealing with this issue for 12 long years. Some of you may be able to identify with having a chronic illness where you've battled the same kind of of disease for a long period of time, or some sort of illness, year after year, and you've never really gotten any better, where you've tried all kinds of doctors, you've tried all of the remedies, you've tried all the uh, uh, medications, you've had the surgeries and all of the rest, only to be consistently frustrated that none of it has worked out for you. So you live with that constant cloud of the illness over your head. Those of you who have been through something like this for a long period of time can identify well with this woman who is, who is battling this issue for 12 years. Something we have to remember is that this woman was experiencing this discharge of blood under the restrictions of the law of Moses. So it's a little different than if somebody here had some sort of illness for a long time that made them ceremonial unclean. We don't experience that kind of thing. You, can, you don't have to be ceremonially clean in the law of Moses' sense, but this woman would have had to be. The fact that she was constantly discharging blood from her body rendered, rendered her to be ceremonially unclean on a consistent basis. She would not have been able to enter into the temple area for worship. The Gospel of Luke tells us that she had literally spent all of her money, all, everything that she had, she spent on doctors in order to get well. So she's desperate, but she cannot go and worship the Lord. And you can imagine that this woman would want to be quiet concerning her illness. She wouldn't have wanted it to be broadcasted. She was consistently unclean, that she had this 
discharge of blood. She wouldn't want the hordes of people around Jesus even in that moment when she's within that crowd. She wouldn't have wanted the crowds to know that she was ceremonially unclean. She wouldn't have wanted the disciples to see her or Jesus to see her or anyone. But she comes up to Jesus and she says, if only I could touch his garments. If only I could just grab onto the bottom of his robe, I would be healed. So we have no indication that the disciples saw her. Actually, we know from the other gospel accounts that the disciples didn't see this woman. We have no indication that the crowds knew that this woman was there trying to reach out to Jesus. As far as this woman is concerned, her goal was to reach out, touch the garments, be healed, and then be on her way. And nobody would be the wiser. But little did she know that to touch the king's garment would stop the entire show. For her to reach out and grab his robe, it was going to stop everything. That moment in time was just going to stand still. As soon as she touches his garments, the eyes of the crowd, the eyes of the disciples, and the eyes of Jesus all go right on to her. An unclean woman. A woman dealing with this discharge of blood, this embarrassing, life-altering, bloody issue. Dealing with it for 12 years. She knew that to reach out and to touch somebody else would cause them to become unclean as well. But she is willing to risk it by reaching out in faith to the one that she knew could heal her. But look what happens in verse 22. Jesus turned. And seeing her, he said, Take heart, daughter. Your faith has made you well. And instantly, the woman was made well. When you see the word instantly, I want you to contrast that with 12 years that she had been battling the struggle. Going to the doctors for 12 years, spending all that she had on it, suffering emotionally, physically, spiritually from this discharge of blood. And the one second that she touches Jesus' robe instantly heals her. Her faith has made her well. Jesus tells her to take heart or to be of good courage or to be of good cheer. She was likely scared, right? I mean, you would have been scared. I, I would have been scared to reach out to this famous Jesus. She would have been nervous that as an unclean person touching a clean person and she didn't know how Jesus would react. It was probably all of that kind of stuff that was going through her mind. But Jesus tells her, he looks at her and says, take heart. Immediately turns around, he looks at her and he identifies that it's not his cloak that has saved her. It's not his garments that have saved her. But the one that she had faith in is the one who saved her. There's nothing miraculous about Jesus' clothes. But there's plenty miraculous about the one that her faith was in, in Christ. We need to remember that this woman would have, been constantly, would have constantly been unfit to worship the Lord. She could not have entered the temple area. Her blood made her unfit. And spiritually, we are in the same exact position. Where sin has caused a grand canyon between us and God. We cannot come to Him claiming that we are well. We cannot come to Him claiming that we are whole on our own. We are riddled with sin. We cannot be tolerated in God's presence unless, like this woman, we can somehow be made well. That we can somehow be made clean. And so I say to you this morning that the only way that we can be made well, the only way that you can be made whole is having faith in the same one that this woman had faith in. Whereas this woman's discharge of blood separated her from being able to worship God for 12 years, it would be the blood of God's Son that would enable her to worship God for the rest of her life. 
She was unclean. She was unfit to worship God. But now that she was clean, she was able to come into his presence once again. And the same is with us. Our sin has separated us from God. But by the blood of Christ, he has cleansed us. And so now we are able to approach him in worship. Not on our own merits. Again, not because we made ourselves whole or we got rid of our problems. But because he has. I don't want to make more of this than there is. But there's something incredibly beautiful about this encounter with this woman. Jesus is on his way to an important situation. Wouldn't you agree that going to see the dead daughter of Jairus was a pretty significant situation? But yet he stops. He he stops. And he deals with this poor woman. I love that. That Jesus in his busyness is helping all of those who come to him. Regardless of occupation. Regardless of sex. Regardless of status. We've seen Jesus heal all kinds. We've seen him heal uh, centurion slaves. We've seen him heal Jewish lepers. We've seen him heal men. We've seen him heal women. We're going to see him heal a child. There is no barrier for Christ. He heals all kinds. And think about all of those on earth who pray in Jesus' name, asking him their requests, begging him and asking forgiveness. All of these prayers that are constantly being lofted up to the throne room of heaven. And Jesus hears all of it. Jesus is not too busy for you, that he hears your prayers. Yet we are still left with this account of Jairus. So we've seen that Jesus picked up and he left the the table answering questions to go and deal with the situation with Jairus' daughter. This woman comes to him on the way in order to be healed. But now that Jesus has healed her, they are back on their way to Jairus' house. And once they get back there, the scene is set for a funeral. Look at verse 23. And when Jesus came to the ruler's house and saw the flute players and the crowd making a commotion, he said, go away, for the girl is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. So they get to Jairus' house, and there are flute players there. What they would have done in these days is they would have hired professional mourners. They would have hired professionals to mourn the loss of the dead person, and, and flute players to play and all of that. They would have made this big scene of, of mourning. People who literally were lead mourners at a funeral. It's an obviously interesting concept. That's what they did. After dying, the bodies in these days, in their culture certainly, because they didn't have embalming or those kinds of things, or they did, but they didn't use it. But the bodies would begin to decompose pretty quickly. So it was imperative that once an individual died, that the flute players and the mourners and all of them came as soon as possible so that everything could be taken care of, that the goodbyes could be said and the person could be buried and all of that. So it all happened to happen pretty quickly. I used to, when when we lived in Wisconsin, I used to work at an insurance company where uh, it was actually my job to pay for funeral expenses that were incurred for those who had a policy with us. So... It was a, a, a difficult job at times because you're dealing with people who literally had just lost a loved one where families would call in and you're, it stinks because you're talking about money and dealing with little logistical things and all of that. So I've seen this whole side of the process of getting a funeral together for somebody who has passed away. But Jairus would have had to arrange all of these things in order to have the funeral and bury his daughter quickly. But before he could put the body to rest, or before he decided to put the body to rest, he brought Jesus to his house to see what he 
could do. And did you see what the first thing Jesus did when he showed up on the scene? He told the flute players and the mourners and all of them, he said, go away. Go away. The girl is not dead, but she is sleeping. Now these people had seen a dead body before. They, they knew what a dead person was. No pulse, no, no breathing. That must mean she's dead. And so without even seeing the body yet, Jesus looks at all of these people and says, Go away, the girl is not dead, but she is sleeping. And so, of course, they laugh at him. But this should cause us to pause for a minute. What, what is the right answer? Is she dead or is she alive? Is she dead or is she sleeping? Is she dead or is she in some kind of a coma or something? And I think what Jesus is doing is really viewing things from his perspective. To everybody else, this girl was dead. But his perspective, she was sleeping. She could be resurrected. Jesus is drawing a parallel here between death and sleep. When you put your head down tonight, you don't assume that that's going to be the end. You assume that you're going to wake up again. And same with death. When we finally close our eyes in death for the Christian, that is certainly not the end. We will open our eyes in the presence of the Lord, but it is not the end. Our eyes will open and he will be there. So she really was dead. But Jesus was about to wake her up from death. Matthew only records what Jesus did. Our passage this morning just records that he goes into the room, grabs her hand, and raises her up. But Mark, the Gospel of Mark, actually records what Jesus says. He goes into this little girl's room. He sees her lying there. He reaches out and touches her and says, Talitha kum. And this was said in a language called Aramaic. It means, little girl, I say to you, arise. Look at the end of verse 25. He went in and took her by the hand, and the girl arose. And the report of this went through all that district. This is the first instance in Matthew where we see a resurrection. Jesus had not necessarily taught on it to this point, like we talked about earlier. But here we see him clearly raising up a little girl from death to life. And as would happen if you encountered a resurrection, the report that Jesus had resurrected this girl went through this entire region. Jesus had, had, had done the miraculous. What everybody assumed was dead, Jesus made come alive. This is a, a miracle. Everywhere this girl would have gone for the rest of her life, can you imagine? She would have been the little girl that was dead, and everybody knew it, but then this guy Jesus comes and resurrects her and makes her come alive. And is this what people know about you? That you were once presumed spiritually dead, but Jesus has come and he has touched you and he has made you come alive. This girl had, had no power within herself to, to raise herself up back from the dead. And this is the same with us. That we don't have the power to raise ourselves from spiritual death, but we need God to come and touch our hand. We need Christ to come and touch our hand and say, Arise! Without his willing hand, we would all still be dead in our trespasses and sins. And all of those here whom Jesus has caused to come alive has the report that you were once dead and are now alive. Has that gone throughout the entire area? We talk about these kinds of things in sermons. And I check myself all the time on this kind of thing. We talk about coming back to life, spiritual death, come back. We've, we've come, we, Christ has made us come alive. We talk about that in sermons, conversations with other Christians. But does that fact that you have been made to come alive, does that truly affect you? We say things like, 
uh, we got saved. But we don't really talk about it like we were truly lost to begin with. We talk about being made alive together with Christ. But the way we talk about it, we make no indication that we were really that dead to begin with. Do you recognize the incredible miracle that your spiritual life is? Has the report of your new life in Christ, has that spread throughout the entire area of Central Maine or this town? Do you, people see us and marvel over the grace of God in our lives? He causes spiritually dead people to come back to life. We have no idea, but how do you think this girl lived for the rest of her life? Pretty safe to assume that she lived a life Praising Jesus, giving glory to Jesus, constantly telling people about what Jesus had done in her life. But if she didn't live that way, I mean, what a tragedy. But how do we live? As a community of God's people, this this fact of resurrection, spiritual life, should cause us to jump out of our skin. This is exciting. This is the result of the power of Christ. All of you were once dead. Completely unable to save yourselves. Completely unable to do anything but continue to erode in your sinful ways. But Jesus came and he touched you and he made you come alive. What does that do for you? How do you live in light of that? For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lived, he lives to God so you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus Romans 6 5 to 11 do you live that way does that grand truth do anything for you and if it doesn't then I think you need to ask yourself if you've ever been made truly alive in the first place the fact that Christ has the power to raise somebody from the dead or to heal a 12 year old girl or excuse me to heal somebody of a 12 year long disease struggle shows us incredible power. These accounts where Christ is doing these things consistently show us that he is the long-awaited Messiah. We've seen that Jesus has power over diseases. He has power over sin. He has power over death. All of this is anticipating what we will fully and finally do, what he will fully and finally do on the cross, where he deals a mortal blow to Satan and overcomes the grave. Jesus is beginning to show us That he has not only the authority to raise people from the dead, but that he has the authority to one day raise himself back from the dead. Our king has authority over disease and death. And he has shown each and every one of you who know him that he does have this authority by healing you and cleansing you and raising you back from the dead. Let's pray. Lord, maybe we never tire of this fact. Refresh in our hearts this message of the gospel. You have come, died, the cross for our sins and resurrected. And we have died with you on that cross and come out of that grave with you. And you have ascended and we look forward to the day where we spend forever with you. In resurrection life, with glorified bodies. And we thank you for these examples that we have within this passage. We thank you that 
we can see that you certainly have authority while you are on earth over all of these things and even now have authority over disease and over death and all of that. Lord, most of all, we are so thankful that although we may experience disease on this earth, although we will experience death, that you have given us spiritual life. So we thank you for that, all that you have given to us in Christ. So we pray this all in his name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message by Brandon Dyer, pastor of Windsor Christian Fellowship in Windsor, Maine. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge them or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our church online at www.windsorchristianfellowship.org. There, you'll find sermons and other information about our church. If you have a need or would like further information, call 242-0126 or email us at wcfmaine at gmail.com. Our mailing address is Windsor Christian Fellowship, 11 Reed Road, Windsor, Maine, 04363. Windsor Christian Fellowship exists to glorify God by making disciples of Jesus Christ through the evangelization of unbelievers and the edification of believers so that all might be glad in God.